0: Ah, greetings, Max. Uh, hello, Mousy. Uh, are we the only ones here? Indeed. And the old boy should have been here by now. Aye, but, well, he aren't. So we need to get the show on the road, then. Uh, uh Mousie, jump up there on the board. All right. Now, when I give the signal, jump on the red button, number one. Ah, uh, red button, number one. I see it. Yes, yes, here we go. Ready? Jump! Uh, huzzah! Uh. The dark storm cloud passed over the 40-foot rod the French scientists had erected on top of a sentry box, just as Benjamin Franklin instructed. A retired French soldier lifted an insulated wire and immediately drew sparks, causing the crowd to erupt in awe and cheers of celebration. It worked just as Ben predicted, Clarie reported happily. Uh,
1: now number two, J- jump on what? number
0: oh, two dear. then. Oh dear, oh uh, dear, right Max. Uh, uh. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. Good job, Mosi. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, Keep in mind, you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderofthe7.com.
1: Max, Nigel, uh, what are you two doing?
0: Well, my pet, it is indeed time to start the podcast. Aye, but do you see a lad anywhere? <coughs> uh, uh, hold up, uh, <clears throat> uh, on today's episode, we'll hear chapter 23 from the voice, the revolution, and the key. And as always, a bit later, we'll stop by Jenny's corner and gain some valuable insight from our author, Miss Jenny L. Cote. Hey, did you hear that? Aye, me ears just perked up, and that means me keen canine sense of hearing detects a noise. Hey.
1: Uh, <laughs> It seems to be coming from the direction of the Uh, door. Liz,
0: please, allow me keen canine sense of hearing to handle it. Hey! Hmm, it seems to be coming from the direction of the door.
1: No kidding.
0: I say, old boy, uh, look, announcer chap is outside knocking on the... Again, please allow me
1: keen... Oh, Max, just look out the window. Monsieur announcer is out there. Uh, Entrez-vous, monsieur, s'il vous plaît? I can't. I don't have my key.
0: Let me in. Uh, Well, no offense, old boy, but uh, what makes you think we have a key?
1: I don't know. Just let me in. Uh, Monsieur, have you ever seen any of us open a door? Uh, No. Aye. Why do you think the doors are all scratched up then? Because me paws can't open it. Uh, We and I seldom desire to go out, so a key would be a low priority for me, even if I were able to use it.
0: While I, on the other hand, simply come and go in and out as I please. What? I'm a tiny mouse. I have my ways.
1: Well, I need a key. Who Did you check under the welcome mat, then? What welcome mat? The one by the door that I am standing on.
0: I say, why on earth is the welcome mat situated on the inside of the door? Good question. It looked like rain last night, so
1: I dragged it inside to keep it dry. Of course, you probably don't feel too welcome then, eh? Not exactly. Do you see a key on the sidewalk? No. Then I deduce that the key may have stuck to the bottom of the mat. Aye. Well, why don't we take a wee look underneath then? (laughs) Ha ha! Huzzah!
0: Well done, Max. There is indeed a shiny brass key. I say, no doubt, the key to our success. What? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> now we just need to get it to Monsieur Announcer. The name is Danny. Sorry, lad. Can't hear you. Oh? What happened to your keen canine sense of hearing? Hm.
0: Well, no matter. Uh, how do we get it to the old boy?
1: Well, I can't do it. Uh, nor I. Nigel?
0: Uh, right. Uh, how am I to get outside, then?
1: You are a tiny mouse. You, you have, have your, your ways.
0: ways. I know. We can tie the key to your color, then. Uh, again, Tiny Mouse, uh, do you see a collar anywhere?
1: Hmm, well, then I shall untwist a paperclip, slip the key onto it, and fashion it into a collar with my teeth. Aye, then Mousey can uh, somehow find his way outside. He has his ways, and then get the key to an answer, lad.
0: Uh, right, uh, and what will you do, Max? Well, I'll go mash the next button so we can hear Chapter 23, and... <laughs> <laughs> Wait till you hear the
1: title then. Here it goes.
0: Chapter 23. Keys to the Future.
1: Oh, what irony.
0: Philadelphia, March 2nd, 1750. Clary sat in the darkened corner of Benjamin Franklin's study, watching Nigel, who mirrored the inventor printer as he put the finishing touches on his letter to Peter Collinson in London. Clary stifled a giggle of delight to see the mouse and the man exhibit the same tendencies, adjusting their spectacles, murmuring, and nodding as they read by the soft glow of the oil lamps. While Benjamin worked at his desk, he couldn't see Nigel behind him on a table where the mouse read the last of several pages going to Collinson, spread out for the ink to dry. "'If ever there was a human version of Nigel, it would be Benjamin Franklin,' thought Clarice. Franklin picked up the last page of this second letter to review, referencing his journal to make sure he had included all his notes. He gave a definitive nod and read the last sentence aloud. Let the experiment be made. Your humble servant, B. Franklin. Franklin leaned back to stretch out both arms and gave a big yawn. He stood up and Nigel darted behind a stack of books as Franklin walked over to gather up all the pages he had written. He proceeded to fold and tie the pages with some heavy twine, melted a glob of red sealing wax onto the knot, and embossed the letter with a brass seal bearing the initials BF. He straightened up and sighed as he looked at the bundled letter, which would go out in the next day's post. "'Well done is better than well said. I hope my next letter will not just be about theory, but actual experiment, Mr. Collinson.' With that, he left the room. Nigel scurried out of his hiding place after Franklin had gone and tried to peek inside the multiple folds of the sealed letter. Clarie joined him on the table, once again in the form of a blue butterfly. Looks as if the second letter is signed, sealed, and ready to be delivered to Collinson. Nigel jumped at the butterfly's sudden appearance. He placed his paw over his heart. You startled me, my dear. Ah, Yes, the letter is ready to go, but unfortunately, Franklin sealed it before I could read the final page. But everything is there from his journal, and, after a little anonymous coaxing, it is done. Mr. Franklin was a bit hesitant to share his theories, even with Collinson, but his idea of putting a tall metal rod atop a tower or steeple to actually draw the electrical charge from a cloud is brilliant." He is obviously eager to test his hypothesis to see if it holds true, but he doesn't wish to be embarrassed if it does not. Benjamin Franklin is not the first scientist to wonder if lightning could be electricity, but no one has ever spelled out how the theory might be tested, much less made a rallying cry to find out for certain. Clarie alighted on the wax seal of the letter. Sometimes the key to opening new doors for the future is a voice bold enough to say what others are thinking, but are too afraid to speak. Indeed, Nigel agreed, cleaning his spectacles on a cloth sitting there. It would appear that Patrick Henry isn't the only one who needs to use his voice in this mission. Well, while I get these letters to London, you can help Franklin figure out how to put his words into action and conduct his experiment here in Philadelphia, Clarie instructed him. Nigel furrowed his brow, placed his paws behind his back, and proceeded to pace back and forth across the table. "There is a slight problem, my dear. Although there are plans to erect a steeple on Christ Church and a tower on the Pennsylvania State House, there are currently no spires in Philadelphia to get the height we need to reach the clouds." He stopped and wrapped a finger around his whiskers as he thought out loud. How does one get a metal rod up into the clouds without a tower? I'm sure you'll figure something out, Clarie replied. Perhaps Cato might have an idea. Nigel's eyes widened. By Jove, you're right. An aerial survey of Philadelphia may yield a solution we have not considered. Just keep Cato away from Ben's end-of-season turkey fry while you're flying around, Clarie joked. Nigel roared, holding his belly. (laughs) If our dear Mr. Franklin could harness a turkey to fly while holding a piece of metal, he would most certainly perform a mid-air turkey fry, thereby killing two birds with one rod, (laughs) his lightning experiment, and his main course. Foundling Hospital Chapel, London, May 1st, 1750
1: "'Here it comes, lass!'
0: Al whispered to Kate, whipping his tail back and forth while he crouched low, anticipating the climactic moment. Kate's face beamed with her perky grin, and she wagged her tail. As soon as Handel pressed the keys of the organ to play the first four notes of the Hallelujah Chorus, the crowd rose to their feet following the tradition of King George II when he stood at the London premiere of Messiah seven years earlier."
1: "'Just look at this crowd. They love it!'
0: Kate exulted. She and Al were watching the concert from high above in the rafters of the newly built chapel of the Foundling Hospital. There was standing room only for this benefit concert. People pressed near the opened windows outside to hear the magnificent music of George Friedrich Handel pouring out into the streets of London.
1: "'If this don't make Messiah popular, I don't know what will.' "'We'll need to make this benefit concert for the Children's Hospital an annual tradition.'
0: "'Aye, and we
1: should have this concert
0: every year, too,' Al answered, oblivious to what Kate had just said. "'Now
1: to the next part of tonight's mission,'
0: Kate said, scanning the audience. She spotted Peter Collinson and David Henry sitting near each other, compliments of Gilliman, who sat between them.
1: "'You're
0: sure you put Ben Franklin's letters in Collinson's left coat pocket?' Al's eyes widened, and a look of fear overtook him as he put a paw up to his mouth.
1: "'Oh,
0: no!' Kate furrowed her brow.
1: "'Don't tell me you forgot! We've got to get those letters into me David Henry's hands tonight!'
0: Al put his paws on his left hip, then his right hip,
1: then back to his left hip. "'I'm sorry, lass. If it were supposed to be in his left pocket, I messed up. I think i put them in his right pocket, but I can't be sure.' They were trying not to be seen. Kate softened. As long as the letters be in one pocket or the other, that'll work. Once Gilliman introduces Peter and David, then mentions meeting Franklin in Philadelphia. One thing will lead to the next. Just wait till Peter and David figure out they both be good friends with Ben. Al
0: crossed both pairs of legs and his eyes. Here is hoopin', lass. After the concert, right on cue, Gilliman struck up a conversation with the gentleman about their mutual acquaintance, Mr. Benjamin Franklin. As they started chatting, Peter Collinson felt the lump in his right coat pocket. I thought I had left these letters on my desk, but amazingly, here they are, Peter Collinson exclaimed, pulling them out to show to David Henry. May I see them? David asked, eagerly scanning the contents. Collinson smiled and clasped his hands behind his back. The Royal Society was extremely impressed with Ben's theories on electricity and lightning. Our motto is nullius in verba, meaning take no one's word for it. The fellows of the Society are determined to verify all statements with facts proved by experiment. Do you think a friend would object to my printing some excerpts in the next edition of Gentleman's Magazine? David asked. If there is one thing I know about our mutual friend, Benjamin Franklin believes that such discoveries are meant for the benefit of all, Peter replied with a smile. I think he would be happy to share his theories, as I did already, with the Royal Society. This is extraordinary, David exclaimed. He placed his finger on a sentence that had caught his eye says that hoses, ships, and even towns and churches "'may be effectually secured from the stroke of lightning by their means. "'This may seem whimsical, but let it pass for the present "'until I send the experiments at large.' "'May I borrow these letters for my article?' "'David asked, thumbing through the pages. "'Perhaps we need to publish these letters in their entirety. "'I will discuss printing a complete pamphlet with Edward Cave.' "'Please do.' "'I will write to Benjamin and tell him of your plans,' Peter replied. He turned to Gilliman. "'My, what a momentous evening this has been, Mr. Gilliman. Uh, first this spectacular evening for Mr. Handel's music and the Foundling Hospital, now this connection with Mr. Henry. <laughs> Truly remarkable!' "'Indeed, I would say it has been an epic evening,' Gilliman replied, shooting a glance up to Kate and Al with a knowing grin. Palace of Versailles France, February 4th, 1752. King Louis XV walked along the opulent Hall of Mirrors with its 17 mirror-clad arches reflecting the 17 arched windows overlooking the magnificent palatial gardens. He slowed his pace to study a dark cloud creeping across the gray winter sky. He frowned at the stormy weather and the now still fountains, longing for the warm, sunny days of spring, with flowering gardens full of music, flowing fountains, and delightful parties. He was tired of bad weather and sneered at the dark cloud, today's nemesis for his mood. The king of France entered the lavish room where his royal court awaited him. The walls were lined with his fanciful courtiers, men and women dressed in colorful silks and powdered wigs, who immediately bowed before the king. He raised his hand in acknowledgement and took a seat in his red plush royal chair. He was not in the mood to listen to the requests of those seeking money, power, or prestige today. Standing there before him were three men who bowed low and with exaggerated movements, trying hard to ingratiate themselves with the king. Louis sighed as his aide approached him with an ornate silver tray bearing a beautifully quilled document. Sayer, if it please the king, these men, Messieurs de Biffon, Delibud, and Delor, wish to present a proposal for a scientific experiment. They have translated an exciting document from America. The king picked up the document. Experience et observation sur l'electricité "'Fait au Philadelphia en Amérique par Monsieur Benjamin Franklin, "'et communiqué dans plusieurs lettres au Monsieur P. Collinson, de Londres, F.R.S.' "'I have heard of this uh, Monsieur Franklin and his uh, poor Richard's omineck,' "'the king recalled as he flipped through the document. "'A printer and a scientist who now proposes what?' "'The three scientists looked at one another nervously, "'excited about sharing the possibilities with the king.' Suddenly, a rumble of thunder was heard outside. Count de Biffun cleared his throat and spoke up. <coughs> uh, 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 Ahem. lightning, sire. Clary, dressed in her blue silk gown to blend in as one of the ladies at court, smiled in the back of the crowd, wrapping her finger around the single curl that dangled onto her shoulder. The king sat up excitedly, eager to hear about Benjamin Franklin's proposed lightning rod experiment. An animated conversation ensued, turning the king's foul mood into one of giddy anticipation. Clary beamed, proud of the scientists she had hand-picked to translate into French Benjamin Franklin's 86-page pamphlet printed by Edward Cave in London. They had outlined how they would conduct the experiments here in France, a land filled with soaring steeples, towers, spires, and plenty of lightning. They discussed Franklin's experiment. On the top of some high tower or steeple, place a kind of sentry box big enough to contain a man and an electrical stand. From the middle of the stand, let an iron rod rise upright twenty or thirty feet, pointed very sharp at the end. If the electrical stand be kept clean and dry, a man standing on it, when such clouds are passing low, might be electrified and afford sparks, the rod drawing fire to him from the cloud. With a broad smile, the king of France held up Benjamin Franklin's document and exclaimed, Laissez faire l'experience. Let the experiment be made. May twentieth, 1752 Gilliman and Clary stood in the IAMosphere gazing at a scene from the village of Marly, on the outskirts of Paris. It was 2 p.m. on May 10, 1752, and a dark storm cloud passed over the 40-foot rod the French scientists had erected on top of a sentry box, just as Benjamin Franklin instructed. A retired French soldier lifted an insulated wire and immediately drew sparks, causing the crowd to erupt in awe and cheers of celebration. See? It worked just as Ben predicted, Clery reported happily. She quickly pointed to another panel. In the excitement, another man grabbed the wire and the experiment was repeated six times. She then pointed to several panels showing the same experiment in different settings.
1: Since then, it's been repeated
0: dozens of times all over France. King Louis was so excited, he had his French scientists immediately send a personal letter to the Royal Society of London with a message of gratitude to Ben. Clarie was giddy with excitement as she next pointed to the panel from today. A very proud Peter Collinson smiled broadly and read aloud the letter from France. The grand monarch of France strictly commanded his scientists to convey compliments in an express manner to Mr. Franklin in Philadelphia for their useful discoveries in electricity and application of the pointed rods to prevent the terrible effects of thunderstorms. "'Monsieur Franklin's idea has ceased to be conjecture. "'Here it has become a reality.'" Gilliman's silky white goatee blew in the wind of the i as he gazed at the exuberant Peter Collinson, who tonight sat at his desk writing a letter to share the exciting news from France with his friend Benjamin Franklin. "'And with that first spark, "'Benjamin Franklin became an international celebrity "'and a hero of France.'" He turned to look at Clary, his blue eyes twinkling with delight. The key is now firmly in the door of France. Well done. I can't wait to go tell Nigel, Clary exulted. He won't need to wait weeks for the good news to arrive from London. But Gilliman stopped her. Don't tell Nigel just yet that Mr. Franklin's experiment worked in France. Clary's lamb eyes grew wide. Why not? If we do will prevent Benjamin Franklin from becoming a hero in America. Gilliman turned to gaze at a panel showing Nigel and Cato soaring over the city of Philadelphia. Besides, I would hate for Nigel to miss all the fun flying his way.
1: Hmm, funny. I was just thinking the same thing. I hate that Nigel missed some of the chapter. Aye, me too, lass. But Nigel be on a vital mission, then. Oui, mon ami. For we have strapped to his tiny little neck a key to unlock our future. Or at least the front door. You see, since a announcer lad couldn't find his key to get in, Mousy
0: be taking it to him, uh, somehow.
1: For as a tiny little mouse, he can find ways in and out that we larger creatures cannot.
0: Aye, so for today's Nigel's News Nuggets, we take ye on location to, uh, whatever location Mousy be at.
1: Uh, Liz to Nigel. Liz to Nigel. Uh, come in, Nigel, s'il vous plaît.
0: Greetings. Monaco here. Nigel P. Monaco. Entrenched in a dangerous mission to supply the key that unlocks... The,
1: the front, front door! door. And where is here?
0: I'm afraid it's not quite that simple, my dear. I've been to places a, a lady feline like yourself should never go. Dark, dank places. Filled with danger, and intrigue. Uh, You've been scurrying up the walls. I heard you plain as day with me... Keen sense sense of of canine canine hearing? hearing? Well, I did. Fine. Uh, For indeed, the first leg of my journey began with an undisclosed gap in the baseboard of a certain undisclosed closet, allowing me access to the inner workings of this structure. Aye, scurrying up the wall that... uh, With the aid of a number 12 electrical cable, properly grounded, of course with which was created an access hole to the attic that was just big enough... For a tiny little mouse? Um, Right. Uh, Where I then found myself over my head in fiberglass insulation. Uh, Were it pink? It were dark. Pitch dark. Except for a single sliver of light emanating through from the louvered attic bent. Still clutching the precious door key tightly to my tiny little chest... I burst upward with all the strength I could muster, to the vent, which was covered with window screen, seemingly rendering me trapped. However, I was aware of a loose flap in the screen, created by a bat, an acquaintance of mine, I thought this story was starting to get a wee bit batty, where I found my way to freedom, but some seventeen feet above the ground, far too high for a tiny little mouse to jump. Thinking quickly,
1: uh, more quickly than this story, I hope?
0: <laughs> Good one, Liz. Thinking quickly and ignoring my hecklers, I slid down the valley of the roof to a gutter, which leads to the downspout I currently occupy. From here, I should be able to slide safely to the ground and deliver my precious... Uh, my, uh, my 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 precious... Uh, oh, dear. Nigel? Oh, dear. I, I seem to have uh, uh, misplaced... Let me guess. The key. Ah, uh, I wanted to guess.
1: Oh, c'est tragique. Now, how will Monsieur Anonso get in? I am afraid we are stuck. Then, we must move on to Ginny's corner. For today, she be
0: talking about getting stuck, too. With a little help from a lad named Noah. Uh, uh,
2: Miss Jenny I got a wonderful email from Noah, who is an epic reader. And he asked me, what gives me ideas when I'm stuck? Aye, we could stand to hear this, then. Noah, that is a great question. Sometimes I do experience writer's block, and it's usually because either I don't know enough about what I'm trying to write about, so I need to do more research, or I've gotten too much research done, and I have too much to choose from, and I have to kind of decide, well, what am I going to include, and what am I not going to include? Many times when I'm stuck and I don't know what to do, I'll go for a walk. And, you know, Max and I took many walks down to the river uh, before we lost Max. And now I walk with Jock. And it is amazing how when I get outside and turn everything off, and it's just me and Jock and the river and God, and I just kind of let my imagination be free for a little bit, let it breathe. And I listened to the maker. (laughs) I said, tell me what I should do what should happen next, and sometimes the inspiration will just come, or if it doesn't come right away, sometimes I'll move a little bit further in the outline in my story, and I'll work on a scene there. Somehow that unlocks the idea that I needed for the previous scene. Now, I also have an amazing muse a wonderful friend by the name of Claire Roberts Foltz. And for those of you who've seen the new Voice The Revolution in the Key study guide, Claire is the author of that amazing study guide. So check it out if you haven't seen it. But Claire has been part of my critique team since page one of book one of The Art, The Reading of the Fire Cloud. And Claire has gifted me with inspiration and helping me to get unstuck, if you will, many times along this journey. So I know that God really brought Claire to me to journey alongside with me. And it's funny, many times when I am stuck and I kind of don't know where I want my plot to go, I'll just give Claire a call or a text and she'll just say something and she doesn't even really know what she's done. But There's something that happens whenever we talk, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's exactly what I needed to do. Now I see. So Noah, it's many things that help to motivate me when I'm stuck. a Walk, getting outside in nature, listening to God, doing a little more research, or calling a friend, someone who knows my books and what I'm trying to do.
1: Oh, merci, Miss Jenny, Uh, but I am afraid that isn't the kind of help we need to get Monsieur Announcer into the building. For now, Nigel has lost the very key that would have accomplished this mission.
0: Well, it was rather dark, you know.
1: Of course, mon ami. You did your best. Uh, So, does anyone have any other ideas?
0: Uh, Well, I got one. Well, what is it, old chap? Uh, He could come in the back door. It would be unlocked. I beg your pardon.
1: Excusez-moi.
0: Okay, I'm in. No thanks to any of you. So, uh, who left the back door unlocked? Huh?
1: Um, <laughs> I that think it was that Come
0: on. I stood out there for the whole podcast, and the back door was unlocked all the while. Who's responsible? Well, uh, lad, uh, who's the only one here that could have locked it then? Besides me? Well, there, um, there's, uh, well, indeed. Well, uh, well, Nigel, you still owe me a key. Aye, we'll all chip in for a new key.
1: And I will get some paper clips to make you a color.
0: Yeah, fine, size 17. So, what's left to do? Well, old chap, you may have the honors of simply uh, closing the show. Uh, just hit the blue button if you don't remember. This one? Um, Thanks for joining us, or for joining them. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grand-y! A biento, mes amis! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.